Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It is exactly four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time and I'll be here, Jan Bartlett, until six this evening. First up, the results of the Timor-Leste elections with Lee Tan. The monthly report from Dr Margie Beavis, who's the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. International allies, who they are and what their role is. Speaking with Kevin Bracken from the MUA. Carolyn Coe in Afghanistan in December last year and the election results in Venezuela. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when the leader of the free world abandoned his proposed meeting with the evil North Korea because the bloke with the funny haircut, the evil North Korean one, had said nasty, hurtful things like complaining that after it destroyed a nuclear site and handed over US of the UN of the US of the world prisoners and other concessions, the US of conducted train killer exercises on its border, practicing invading it and said if evil North Korea didn't stop being evil, the great and beloved leader Kim Il's grandson would be Kim Illa as he copped what Qaddafi copped in Libya and Donald and his bomb the whole world advisor John Belton and Vice Supremo Mike Dollars and Pence couldn't understand how evil North Korea could be upset by little matters like practicing to invade it and threatening to murder the brilliant grandson. So Donald, the uncrowned Nobel Peace Prize laureate, had no choice but to confirm his consistency. Consistently erratic, although surely they could have got together for no other purpose than to compare notes about their hairdressers. But Donald's letter to Kim said the meeting was off, and it was all Kim's fault. And then the consistency continued and Donald said the meeting was on again unless it wasn't on again and said he'd never said it was off and how could anyone get that impression from his letter? Fake news. But we'll see what happens. And so we're maintaining a we'll see what happens watch at one minute intervals and in the past hour the meeting has been off 26 times and on 34 times with Donald denying he'd ever said it was off 26 times and musing, we'll see what happens, 34 times. Pity Donald and John and Mike have ignored our warning last week as they still seem to have forgotten that the US of has always vehemently denied having anything to do with overthrowing Qaddafi and making then evil Libya the peaceful, united dystopia it now is. During one of the meeting off deludes, Donald warned he would hit evil North Korea with the biggest, most destructive nuclear arsenal in the world. Good, good. Uh, yes, Donald, how come you can have most of the nuclear weapons in the world and they can't have any? Because ours are good, good, safe, safe. Theirs are evil, evil, unsafe, unsafe. Good to know there's such a thing as a safe nuclear weapon. And it's true, it's true, because... Wait just a couple of thousand years, or maybe a couple of hundred thousand years, and the area could be safe again. 
Related to all this, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review released its annual Filthy Richest of the Filthy Rich list and congratulations to Donald Trump or the poor's very, very close friend, Anthony He's a Pratt. Indeed, the magazine cover ticket line Kicker line, Donald Trample the Poor is making cardboard king Anthony Heaser Pratt even richer. Birds of a feather. But also related to evil union boss, that most condemning of pejoratives, John Setka. Okay, what do John Setka and True Blue Aussie's richest man have in common, I hear you say? Well, well, it's obvious. The same silk who helped the evil union officials have their case withdrawn also represented Anthony's sadly lamented dad, Big Dick, on all those cartel and ripping off trillions charges, ensuring the case never got to trial before Big Dick left this world, presumably in a cardboard box. We asked Anthony what he put his filthy riches down to. Uh, well, a dad slept with mum. Y- yes, but what's that got to do with it? That's it. Lucky for Anthony that Big Dick did sleep with mum that night. In the it's hard to believe department, among our brave young men and women in uniform, trained killers, there were 265 reported sexual misconduct charges in the past year. And we can assume there were probably more than a few unreported. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that those whose occupation is to kill people would have a nasty bone in their bodies, would have the slightest inclination to assault and hurt people, to bully, to seek power over. After all, we're talking about the cream of True Blue Aussie cannon fodder youth. And one of them, a former decorated train killer called Hasty, lived up to his name and made life a little more comfortable for the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash up the workers, as he exposed a Chinese filthy rich person for doing something or other the US either told him about in his role as head of a security committee, which in this case leaked from the top. Perfect timing for which Julie must have rushed round with a bottle of champers to thank him profusely. In a week when a former ambassador to China had called for big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull to sack her because of the damage she was doing to true blue Aussie China relations. Following which she met her Chinese counterpart at a regional meeting and said they were like brother and sister. So warm was their relationship and he said the atmosphere was frigid, cold as ice. And given one of the criticisms was she hadn't visited China in eons, it was odds on she'd be desperate for an invite. Invite me. Come on, invite me. Please. Please. So she said she'd been invited, and he said she hadn't. And amid all this, we can but assume poor Julie also had to explain to the US of how ex-train killer Hasty had been so hasty with confidential information. But... Julie displayed her diplomatic skills when a Netherlands report claimed the missile which brought down that Malaysian flight over a war zone was Russian. And Julie said this could have severe consequences for Russia from true blue Aussie. So imagine how they'll be shaking in their boots in the Kremlin as they rush to their world atlases. What does it start with, Piotr Ilyich? A, A, A. Speaking of Piotr Ilyich, perhaps we can ban Russian ballet companies visiting Troubadour Aussie. That'd show them. We were hoping to conduct an interview with former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Big Supremo Barnacle about his $150,000 deal with one of those 
deeply, deeply in-depth so-called current affairs programs for the brain dead, an ideal outlet for Barnacle's plea for privacy, in which the baby is odds-on to make the most sense. But after asking Barnacle what his privacy is worth, my privacy is worth everything to me. Everything, Barnacle. Everything. Up to 150 big ones. We ran into trouble. Uh, but you're taking advantage of me. How much are you paying me for this interview? Uh, don't follow. Nothing. Nothing. It's just a routine interview with a politician. That's it then. That's it. No more questions. So that was that. We didn't get too far on our 3CR budget, but can I suggest, because it's like a breath of fresh air to have Barnacle back in the news, that we conduct a special radiothon over, over and above the one we're about to have to raise a fund allowing us to continue benefiting from Barnacle's thoughts. In his vital community role dictating what we all must think, sorry, badly phrased, Expressing how we all think, Lord Rupert of Wapping has found a social disaster almost as evil as evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. The Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Sounds benign, doesn't it? But anything but. No, this perfidious, untrue Blavosi collection of legal misfits has the audacity to apply the law the law to sensible decisions by our warm, humane protector, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Duffer, who has himself expressed his frustration at these misfits applying the law to his decisions. You can't imagine how angry that makes them. Evil aliens. Okay, some of them perhaps most, may have come here as toddlers, but they are so evil they deserve to be deported back to where they have no idea they came from, toddled off from. And this bloody tribunal overrules poor Peter and allows them to remain here with their families, taking cruel advantage of our goodness. And worse, past tribunal members are being re-employed to assess cases back where they stuffed up in the first place on huge salaries at public expense public funds employed to destroy society as we know it. If we had any doubts about Lord Rupert's anger at this injustice, the improper use of the law, Lord Rupert and Pete, for that matter, have been backed up by no less responsible a great troubler was he as former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses himself. All doubts expunged. No embellishment here, listener. Direct quote, the judiciary at every level seems more determined to encroach on what was traditionally the role of the executive government. The government's job is to keep us safe, to get rid of undesirable people who were in our midst and did bad things but don't have the right to stay here. Slight break here just to complain. Tiny meets all the criteria except the don't have the right to stay bit. Unless we can prove otherwise, and, and it's got to be worth a try, listener. Right. But don't have the right to stay here, and it is just awful when the AAT seems to bend over backwards to find in favour of people who are ripping us off. One of the reasons people are so frustrated is because they elect governments to get on with things, whether it is the Senate and whether it is the courts or the tribunals, are always seeming to get in the way of what the government was elected to do. So finally, 
apart from the grammatical nonsense of that last bit and an elaboration of how people who have been here most of their lives are ripping us off wouldn't have hurt, a couple of points, Tony. You mightn't, or tiny, you mightn't have noticed it, but the Senate is, wait for it, wait for it, sit down, elected. And can we suggest you pop into the parliamentary library and brush up on the separation of powers bit? Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And as I remind people just about every week, you can hear more of Kevin Healy. Lots, lots more for a whole hour tomorrow morning starting at nine with his friends for City Limits. And he did mention in... His week that was that Radiothon's coming up and I believe that ours for Tuesday home time is today fortnight, so not long to go. 3CR needs you. Fight for your mic and donate to 3CR's annual Radiothon. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. Radiothon starts... June 4th. As promised on the program last week, activist and environmental consultant Lee Tan's analysis of the May 12 elections in Timor-Leste. It's actually a very sad situation that Timor is going to return, you know, for a re-election less than a year, maybe, yeah, after the last election. And also the inability of the major parties to try and make parliament work in this kind of, yeah, kind of, in a situation where there's no high, you know, overwhelming majority for any party, a lot of blames, you know, attributed to the Fresseline for not being compromising enough. But at the same time, the Fresseline saying that, you know, the Shannon's party is uh, stirring up issues and, and not cooperating. So, yes, there's still, you know, that will continue. Although after the Saturday's election, uh, Shinana's party, AMP, they call it, is a coalition, managed to secure a, a, a high majority. So, you know, that kind of contest in parliament will not happen again. But I would really like to see still a strong opposition to make sure that, you know, decision-making is as democratic as uh, as possible. I think in the past, when at that time it was a CNRT coalition under the Shanana Gushmao, and they did a deal with uh, the Fresselin. And from that deal, nobody was really questioning any decision-making at the parliamentary level, and it becomes very one-sided in that sense. Everyone seems to be happy and some of the development decisions are actually not that good, but nobody's actually debating it. I hope this is not going to happen next this term and I hope that Fresselin will remain a strong opposition even if it can't form government. But, you know, the situation in Timor will remain quite fragmented for a while, partly because of the makeup of the society. But, you know, the good thing is that there weren't any major unrest leading to the election. And I think everyone accepted the result, whether they like it or not. 
and what will be the issues that need to be addressed in the near future? Again, you know, the development anger, oil revenue, how they're going to spend it to really benefit community and the, the country, but also how to stretch the revenue to make sure that Timor can continue to sustain its economic position after all the oil and gas resources in the Timor gap has been exhausted. They don't actually have a lot of time. It's, I think, less than 10 years now, and they've already spent and overspent some of that oil and gas revenue, but not in a way that uh, has helped to create an alternative economic activities in the country. I think the priority has to look into that and giving better support to the rural community, not only just in trade, but in basic education, in healthcare, uh, in infrastructure, transport infrastructure, in communication, so on and so forth. So that this connection between the rural community and the urban and that produce from the rural community can actually be sold to the urban center, the small downstream processing for farm produce, so that they're not so relying on imports from Indonesia and um, sending their, their money you know, to Indonesia instead of keeping it to circulate in Timor itself. I think all of that needs to be done. Whether or not it's going to happen, uh, we, we, we're not sure, you know, wait and see kind of situation. And tourism as well. I mean, Timor is a beautiful country with very unique and fascinating culture. And, you know, that's an area that can be developed to benefit local community. And in, in the past, when I've been involved in Timor, we actually set up some demonstration projects based on community tourism, and it's been working quite well. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons that can be captured from there as well. Thank you so much, Lee Tan. You're welcome, Jen. And that was Lee Tan, who's an environmental consultant, speaking about Timor-Leste. And as she said, she's been working there with the, the local grassroots people, setting up projects for them over the last couple of years. The time here at 3CR is 4.18. As I said before, the Radiothon is not next week, but the week after, so... It's going to be a busy couple of weeks, so we do hope that all our regular listeners will put their hands in their pockets to make sure that their favourite community radio station remains on air for probably the must be 42 years. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio You got it right, you've won a giraffe uh, We're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. 
In December last year, Carolyn Coe, representing Voices for Creative Nonviolence, travelled to Kabul, Afghanistan, as a guest of the Afghan Peace Volunteers. This was not her first visit, so I asked her when she'd been there previously. I was first there four years ago. Now that it's spring, it's about four and a half years ago. What takes you back? The children on the different visits. I've seen many of the same children and youth year after year, and it's an amazing opportunity to see them grow up and change, and I'm so inspired by all the projects that they do and their ability to to laugh and, and play games and <laughs> just their resiliency I find quite inspiring. Are you yourself a school teacher? I teach mostly adults. I am a teacher at a community college in Maine where I teach writing and English to English language learners. And I also teach yoga classes and primarily again I teach adults but I teach a yoga class at a homeless shelter, and there I'm primarily working with children. When you're in Afghanistan, where are these children coming from that you have spent time with? I've always met the children at a place called the Border Free Nonviolence Community Center, which is in Kabul, Afghanistan. The children may have been born in the city, or they may have come there, you know, as children, as their families moved, or in some cases, they have come to uh, Kabul to study at university or do high school education. So they may have come from Bamiyan or Herat or Baglan, you know, Ghazni, uh, various provinces, but I am meeting them all in Kabul. And how do they get to Kabul? I know it's a it's a worn torn country. What's the travelling like for people to get into Kabul? Because we hear about the bombs that are going off even in the safe areas now. None of the children I know have ever travelled in country by plane, so it's always in a vehicle, likely a shared taxi of some sort. Whether that shared taxi looks like a minivan or what it looks like, I couldn't tell you because I've never traveled outside the capital, but I do know it's a shared taxi that they take. Although years ago, some would even walk quite a distance as well to travel. And as the students have communicated to me, if there's a problem on the road, the different taxi drivers communicate to each other and they, you know, suggest that they take a different route. <laughs> so there's some problem. Sometimes, if it can be anticipated, they might choose an alternative route to go. But, of course, some things can't be anticipated. How many of those children there would be there without their families? I don't know percentage-wise. I could just say that there are children who come to live in the city like for high school or, or university, who might live together with other students, but that's pretty rare. Generally, if they're coming to study in the city, they're either staying in a dormitory if it's university, or they'd be staying with some 
more distant relatives in the city. It isn't culturally typical that children or youth from different families would be living together to study. In terms of families, some children have lost a, a parent. It seems as often to illness or disease as as for other reasons. A lot of people are in poor health, and so uh, children lose their parents for that reason as well. What is there for them at the, the Border Free Centre? What happens on a daily basis? What happens on a daily basis at the Border Free Centre can really vary. <laughs> but there are 17 different teams of youth, uh, volunteer teams. So any number of those teams might meet on a given day and try to organize an activity. Those teams range from like a media team to a group that works on permaculture to team members who help run the street kids school. So there are meetings like that. There are also the coordinators of those different teams meet once a week and they may have a team building session or they might go over what the different teams are doing and if the team needs allocation, some funds for a project they'd like to do, the different coordinators would come to an agreement together whether to support that idea or not. Some of the teams have activities like uh, on a Friday morning, maybe the cycling club will go out for a ride on their bicycles. Various activities, it tends to be late in the day when people are just hanging out because people come there just to do that as well, that someone might pull out a drum and then there might be a sort of impromptu dance party <laughs> as the youth, you know, release some steam. A lot of meetings, but meetings that include games and skits and they manage to keep it fun. And where do these teams of youth volunteers come from? The volunteers, who are they? So the volunteers are youth from Kabul. They may be students that are middle school, high school, or university students. And either through a friend, uh, through a friend generally, they learn about the center and then they come and they decide what their interests are. I mean, are they interested in you know, helping projects to support the women or worker cooperatives or are they interested in doing, you know, like social media work or, and then they join a team. So, again, the youth are from Kabul but maybe originally from another province. So they're doing this in their spare time from their own studies. Right, exactly. So, So the time when I have traveled there, so... For example, when I was there in December for 10 days, the students were finishing up their exams or had finished. And so for a, until mid-March, they had more free time, although a number of students in, in Afghanistan, at least in the capital, they were taking special courses when their regular school ends. So they might still be having to work around these special courses just to increase their study time. But, they, yes, they, they work in their free... They come and volunteer during their free time. And the children that they're assisting in this centre are street kids? Are they homeless children? Who are these children that come to the centre? I've 
interviewed maybe a dozen of the kids over the years, just more in-depth, and none of them were living on the street. I can't say that's true necessarily of all the ones um, at the school, but at least the ones I interviewed, they were living in homes, and the homes really varied quite a bit. There is one girl named Arila, who's 13, and she's sharing a single room with her aunt, and they live in a that room without any sort of wood stove, so it can be quite cold at night. They, they heat something like a tea kettle at night and put a blanket over that, and then they can tuck their toes underneath that blanket to stay warm at night. Other families might have more than one room in which they live. It depends on income level, what their situation is, and what kind of stove they have, you know, how much food, their ability to pay rent. But among the the children I talked to all had some shelter. They may not have had running water, but they did have a shelter. And would these children that you talked to have parents who have got work, or is it unemployment a huge problem? Unemployment is a huge problem. <laughs> it's, I've heard estimated that more than 80% are unemployed, or at least not regular enough employment. So the consequence is that the children often, you know, beginning at, say, age 8, maybe younger, are forced to work to help support the family. So they may be selling sunflower seeds in the street, or they may be washing cars, or they may be shining shoes. You know, some are carpet weavers or working in factories. So at a young age, the children may be doing, just earning a little bit of money just to make enough for the family to buy food for the day. It's especially an issue when the father either has a disability or the father is not the head of household because it can be more challenging for the women to work outside the home. Not as common culturally for the woman to work outside. So she, if woman is the head of household, she might clean people's houses or doing the, or clean, do laundry or things like that. But the children often have to work. I've heard um, or read different statistics. I think it was Human Rights Watch that said more than a quarter of Afghan children generally have to work to help support the families. Save the Children gave the number at 2.2 million, which would be less than a quarter, but it's still quite a large number. How safe are the children out on the streets selling? It's always a danger to be on the street, just in terms of the general security. I mean, you mentioned earlier and asked me about the deteriorating security situation in the country. And so it's, it's always a risk. And, you know, last time I was there, one of the, the young men, one of the university students who's a, who volunteer teaches at the street kids school, you know, described going out to the market at night. And most people don't go out at night in Kabul. So it was after dark. And he saw one of the little girls who studies at the school out selling sunflower seeds and he felt so sad because it's not considered safe to be out at night and 
it isn't healthy either because Kabul has some of the worst pollution in the world. And especially after about 4 o'clock and until sometime mid-morning, the air quality is just horrible. So there's the physical safety just because of security threat. There's the pollution. But in terms of if children specifically are targeted or harassed, I, I haven't heard anything about that. Getting back to the, the centre, the Border Free Centre, you say you've followed some children right through from the first time you were there. Can you talk about maybe a couple of those children, maybe a girl and a boy, to see how they've progressed over that time? I'm thinking of one girl. Her, her name, um, I think I may have mentioned her before by name, Adila, who lives with her aunt. She's, I believe, 13 now. She shared with me how she's become so much more confident. You know, she's a lot of the students really struggle with literacy when they first come to the centers because they may have gone to government school before or they may not. But the students who go to government school don't gain literacy for many years typically, whereas if they study at the Border Free Center, Usually within a matter of months, they're able to read and write in a basic way. You know, she shared how much more confident she is as a student. And so she has dreams that I don't imagine she had, or she didn't have the imagination for it. You know, didn't think that it was possible before. Like now she wants to continue her studies and go to university. She wants to be a doctor. And only then to return to her home province of Baglan. One thing that hasn't changed for her is kind of the family situation or the her concern about her father and parents asking her to come back to the province because she believes that if she can't stay with her aunt in the city and she does return to her parents' home, that she won't be allowed to continue studying. And that's one thing that she wants to do. Another thing that has changed for her is when she was first invited to come to the center and to study, she was selling bologna on the street. And bologna are a type of potato leek pancake that her aunt would make. And she's no longer working in the street. I think in part because her aunt is supporting, is trying to support her studies and not only studying at the center, but also in the government school, but also because the students who study at the center, for the three years they're at the street kids' school, they're given food provisions, like rice and lentils and sugar and tea, beans, and that that oil um, and those food provisions lessen the need for the children to work. I mean, it certainly doesn't take the place, but it's a bit of a motivator as well. In terms of a boy, one of the boys I talked to this time more in depth was, his name is Amrullah. It's his third year at the school, so he would have graduated in March. I asked him if he might be interested in continuing to come to the center, but as a volunteer. And he said yes, and he said he wanted to work on some nonviolence team, and I asked him why, and he described 
how much he had learned about nonviolence while sitting at the center and how it had really changed his thinking. And I asked him to give an example, and he said he used to have a reputation as a fighter. So when he would see the wealthier kids on the street with their nice clothes, he would start a fight because he was felt frustration. And after the studies at the center, he began to learn that the fighting wasn't necessarily the best route to take. And he felt more comfortable as himself as a person, and he came to believe that, you know, I'm my own person, it doesn't matter that they have different clothes. And so he stopped fighting them. And I asked him, well, did the other kids wonder why you stopped fighting? And he said, yeah, they did. And he said, well, I studied nonviolence, and he began to explain. But the the concept, because it was so foreign to the other children, they couldn't really grasp what he was talking about because not only is there the violence that is from, like, the U.S. forces being in the country, but there's also the violence in the schools where the teachers might have a student stand on one leg for a very long time if the student didn't complete his homework or, you know, the violence maybe being beaten in the home. So, you know, to to come to, to some understanding of this concept of nonviolence, I see as being quite significant. I'd imagine a number of these children would have experienced the, the violence of war too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, some of, with the older children, I've talked more in depth about that. For example, there's a, a woman named Darguna who's about 24. She graduated from university last year, last March, and she grew up in Bamiyan, and her father, uncle, and grandfather were all killed by the Taliban. And unfortunately, she was there and witnessed. It's a story that she has told me many times, and so I know it's not something that she can let go of. She has described her grandfather telling the Taliban, if you kill me, then there will not be enough blood to make mud, meaning that he was a very old man and it could not possibly serve them to to kill him, but still he was killed. And, you know, she'll live with the effects of those killings that occurred when she was about 11, I think, for the rest of her life. How many children do you believe the centre has helped over the years it's been in operation since the centre started? Oh, I really have no idea. I know, for example, last year and the year before, the school served about 95 children. The first year of the school, it was smaller, but for the last couple of years, at least, it's been close to 100. There are over 100 volunteers. I don't know how many volunteers regularly come. Unfortunately, I don't know how many people it has touched, but I would say that increasingly I'm seeing a little bit of evidence that the youth that come to the center 
and stay with it for some time who find it to be a meaningful experience to be there are sharing the lessons in equality and sustainability and nonviolence with others, with their family members. Maybe they're bringing it up in their schools. And, of course, in some cases, they get a lot of resistance, whether in the form of just not understanding or thinking that some of their volunteer activities are not appropriate or being with children of other ethnic groups may not be appropriate. But some stay with it. And there was an example of a youth who graduated from high school last year, and he has since begun teaching for Jesuit Refugee Services, or JRF, in Kabul at one of the refugee camps there. And he has shared different games and lessons in nonviolence, peace circles, and things like that with the girls that he teaches in the camp. While I can't say how many youth have been impacted, I know some of the youth are really sharing the ideas with a broader community, and and that's quite exciting. I'm just wondering where the funding comes from. There's the food for the children, there's the rent to pay for the premises, there's the materials for the blankets for for the women... Who funds the center? Yeah, the funding has largely been from Voices for Creative Nonviolence, which is a Chicago, USA-based group. There is also a UK version of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. There are other friends of the Border Free Nonviolence Center who have traveled there and give donations, but largely it's been from Voices. The Volunteers at the Border Free Center have been trying to work to make it more sustainable locally. So, for example, I think it's just in the last year that they've asked volunteers if it is feasible for their family to pay a small amount in dues each month, which covers, like, snacks at the center and when they're having meetings and things like that. If they're unable to pay or can only pay less than that amount, that isn't a problem. They're still allowed to participate. And they have made an effort to reach out to local shopkeepers to donate some rice or oil, for example, the food provisions that are distributed. But on a larger scale, for the bulk of the cost, it does come from voices. Finally, Carolyn, you're only there for a fairly short time. You have been there, as you said, a number of times. What do you feel your contribution is and has been and will be in the future? I think the most important thing that I do is to listen and to observe, to learn what I can from the youth, and then to share it with people in the United States. Whether you read a newspaper or get news online or in some other form, it's so rare to encounter any story that isn't just about the U.S. military or if there's a a large casualty count because of some attack in the country. But you don't encounter any stories about these amazing children 
or about other things that are happening and and or about long-term issues like unemployment, like food insecurity. And I I think it's important to keep these stories alive or in in my own small way try to share the stories of some of the people that I've met so that these Afghan individuals that are the human beings, that they're not numbers, that they're not stereotypes, that they're individual humans. And that was Carolyn Coe speaking on a not quite perfect phone line from the US, but nevertheless she had really interesting things to say about the support for street kids in Kabul, and there's certainly a great number of them with the Afghan Peace Brigades. And she was there representing Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And you can look up their website, and I'm sure if you'd like to support the work that they do, you could find it on that webpage, Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and that was Carolyn Coe. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogra, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 And the time now is 5.4, 4.45 here at 3CR. And just to remind you, there are five ways you can listen to 3CR. I'm not sure which one you're on at the moment, but... The old way is 8.55am on the radio dial. If you've got a digital radio, we're 3CR. If you're on the web, it can be live streaming, so you can listen as the program goes to air, 3cr.org.au. Or if you want to listen back on the program over the one week, you can do that. It's called Audio On Demand, and the program runs for one week. And then when that week is up, the next program plays for one week. And the final way is podcasting, again, at 3cr.org.au. And you'll find all these information avenues on your computer, 3cr.org.au, to find out more more ways to listen to 3CR. The Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate is back. We live in a time of crisis, of impending doom and the fear of nuclear war. But we still need to laugh. This year, comedians will debate the very real question. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? Join Master of Ceremonies Rod Quantock for a sparkling night of progressive comedy featuring Sean Bedlam, Pauline Fartson Hellchild, Kirsty Mack, Gabe Hogan, Frank Hamster, Morvan Smith and more. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged and $12 Concessions. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. 
Saturday, June 16, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? A fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential, phone 9639 8622 or go to trybooking.com forward slash VBYO. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Next, the monthly talk with the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr Margie Beavis, and I spoke with Margie yesterday morning and began by saying that the place to begin was developments relating to the Australian War Memorial in Canberra and asked her first if she'd been there. I haven't, I have to say. But you've got a pretty good idea how big it is. I've heard it's enormous. Sue Wareham, our illustrious president and uh, long-time peace campaigner, has um, been watching them for a long time. And in fact, Sue Wareham last year stopped them building yet another war commemoration because Canberra's littered with them. She said last year, there was a, it might have been two years ago, she actually stopped them building another one because there is enough. I mean, we think war is important to recognise. In fact, I think war is very important to recognise and commemorate and respect the people that have died but at the same time to take literally the, the, you know, the war to end all wars motto was trying to make it never again. It's a terrible thing, and by having a memorial, then you do make people realise it's a terrible thing. just want to concentrate on a couple of things. One was the, the announcement by Dr Nelson that they were going to spend another $500 million on redevelopment. I'm not quite... I think it was an underground part of the, the war memorial, and there was a great dissension on that because people were saying look the veterans don't get enough why are you spending money on this look genuine commemoration doesn't need huge budgets the war memorial is big it doesn't need to expand there's a whole lot of subtext that we are concerned about about normalizing militarism and normalizing the military in our society and glorifying war in in, in commemoration and it's really important in commemoration for it to be respectful and thoughtful rather than isn't war, isn't war an amazing thing and, and we should all be paying our respects to how what a, what a wonderful thing it, well not wonderful is the wrong word but yes we don't think the extra 500 million is justified it would be much better to put into veterans health the other concerning thing which I suspect you may be leading on to is the sponsorships by the weapons company yes go ahead which one the, well, yeah, exactly. There's many uh, weapons countries that, companies that are being approached for donations to the War Memorial. The AW, the War Memorial even offers some brand name promotions. So, for instance, British Aerospace Systems has a theatre at the War Memorial, and this is Britain's biggest weapons maker, who is a major military supplier to Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia, as we know, is a stands accused of many human rights abuses in its own country. It's also been 
a significant sponsor of terrorism and it's bombing civilians in Yemen. So for British aerospace to be getting um, its name up in lights in the war memorial is actually pretty revolting. It's also been the subject, British aerospace has been subject of multiple corruption allegations and investigations, including for its dealings in Saudi Arabia. And there seems to be a bit of double standards with Andrew Hastie naming an alleged Chinese businessman for bribing or allegedly bribing a UN official and we have this same Chinese businessman who's been been told he's given over half a million to the, the war memorial. Oh, I didn't know about him, but that wouldn't surprise me that this suddenly... It's a good way of sanitising your reputation in Australia. I mean, Anzac Day's moved from being a really quiet, reflective... When I was a kid, you'd go to Anzac Day and you'd watch the people go past and it would be just a sort of a procession that was... I mean, it was fine, but it wasn't sort of the cheering and, and um, hoopla that there is now. And, and you do really wonder about, as I said, the militarism in our society. The other thing with the, the weapons companies, I mean, for them to be sponsoring a war memorial is really revolting. I mean, we wouldn't let a cigarette company or an alcohol company sponsor a hospital ward. So why, why should we get arms dealers to sponsor the war memorial? And also by... Making it bigger and brighter and better, you basically end up displaying more military hardware and even more of Australia's fighting prowess. So this is, again, sort of normalising war and glorifying the manufacturers. So, you know, as I said before, genuine commemoration doesn't need a huge budget. And it seems to be obligatory for school children to be shown around the war memorial now. Well, I've been told by Sue, as I said, I've never been there, but... I've been told by Sue that the children's area, they have sort of dressing up and other games and sort of sanitised sort of almost beyond belief. And um, her comment was she wonders what the diggers in their rat-infested trenches might have thought about such fun activities. You know, it's sort of like, again, normalising and sanitising and making war seem like it's acceptable and normal. To my knowledge, there's no displays about diplomacy and peacemaking and what Australia got a reasonable record in Bougainville and in Cambodia where we act as a peacemaker and were able to avert conflict. But there's nothing about peace or alternative to war. And I'd be very surprised if there's anything about the costs of war because the costs of war are major in terms of the civilian deaths in any country but also the costs of war here at home where, you know, just by spending billions of dollars overseas, that's that much less to go into our health and hospital systems. Can you think of what Australian soldiers, both male and female, have been doing over the last 15, 20 years? First, the illegal occupation and devastation of Iraq, and now they're in Syria illegally because they weren't yeah, invited yeah. in by the government. And, and also that Iraq, I mean, I've said this before, but Iraq was, an op- as you said, an op- not only an illegal war, but also an optional war, politically convenient war, and the German analysis done by the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War showed that approximately a million Iraqis died from 2003 to 2010 that otherwise would still have been alive because of this decision. And a million is just such a hard number to get your head around. But then there's all the casualties and there's all the refugees. That, this, that war is just so incredibly damaging. And to have a war memorial that tries to normalise this and a war memorial that tries to make this a really viable option for, you know, make, to, to make things it, it more acceptable is not okay. Well, while many countries in the world are working pretty hard now to make sure that um, nuclear weapons are banned, we have um, a story just the other day that the US is moving to rebuild its nuclear arsenal. Yes, it's really extraordinary. that I mean, especially when they're pushing for denuclearization of the... the uh, North Koreans, this is, they, they're planning 1.2 trillion, 
trillion dollars. So that's one one thousand two hundred billion in the next thirty years, and I think it's about four hundred and sixty or four hundred eighty billion in the next ten years. So just on their nuclear weapon systems, all the while they're saying to other people, "You need to get rid of your nuclear weapons." It's such an example of "do as I do, not do as I say," and such an example of sort of. I think Donald Trump said in his letter, you talk about, uh, or he said previously that you talk about your nuclear capabilities, but ours are so massive and powerful that I pray to God they will never have to be used. Well, sorry, praying to God isn't enough. If you're going to talk about denuclearization, spending $1.2 trillion in the next 30 years is such a piece of hypocrisy. And we're still, I mean, I, I talked before about the, the damage that it does to society, but can you imagine what, how, if, you just, if they just put that money into the American health system and gave themselves a little bit of a boost to the health system, imagine what that would do in terms of the community health and community well-being. I mean, I, I'm taking this from a very one-sided argument, but th- that's the lens I go to. I worked in America for three years, and their health system is terrible because the, the wealthy are absolutely fine, but the poor have very few options and are frequently bankrupted by the health system. So it's it's sort of like to be spending this much money on nuclear weapons when there's so much else that's necessary and, and under-resourced in America is really pretty awful. And, and the education system also could do it a huge boost to resources. I mean, to mention many other things. But, yes, I think it's a huge amount of money. It's dangerous for the world because it'll make the, world, the U.S. just more more powerful but also more unbalanced, if you like, and when you see people like Trump at the helm of this huge nuclear build-up, it's pretty scary. How's the campaign going to get the countries to sign up to the, the treaty? It's going well, actually. With, there's, with the new treaty that was signed in July last year at the United Nations, it requires 50 countries to sign and ratify. We have 58 countries already signed, and there'll be more coming. We have 10 countries that have already put it through the legislature, so 10 countries have already ratified it. Now, we think this will take two or three years, so we're really quite excited to have 10 already, since it was only July last year, that have already put it through the legislatures. And I think we're very, um, yeah, really, it's it's just slow, steady progress, and one by one these countries are going to sign on, and once we get to 50, then it becomes international law, so that using these weapons becomes a war crime, just like using chemical weapons and biological weapons. And so, no, it's chugging along is is the the short answer. Now, you sat through the ALP conference at the weekend. You'd have to have pretty good reason to sit through two days of that, I'd imagine. Was that to do with the campaign? Indeed. We actually had a stall out in the foyer, and it was actually, I actually really enjoyed it because we had lots of good conversations about why the nuclear weapons ban treaty is important, why it's really important. The ALP has had a really good policy till now supporting the creation of the nuclear weapons ban treaty. We are really keen for when they update that policy, now that the treaty exists, that they commit to sign this treaty and then to ratify it in Australia. And the ALP National Conference is coming up, although who knows when that actually will be. But, in fact, yeah, it may be announced by the time this is aired, but it's a really encouraging thing that we have nearly three quarters of sitting federal members of parliament have signed a pledge, an ICANN pledge, to say that with in government they would support signing and ratifying this treaty. So we're, we're talking to the parliamentarians, we're talking to the members, uh, we're very keen to talk to ALP branches, if there's anyone on an ALP branch out there who would like us to come and speak on why nuclear disarmament is a really important issue, 
get in touch. I'm accessible through Medical Association Prevention of War. But the AOP conference, actually, I, I was not expecting to enjoy it, and I actually had some really good conversations and enjoyed it a lot. Okay. had uh, photos with Dan Andrews, and, yeah, it was good. Okay. Finally, Margie, a person who was well-loved by many, many people in the medical profession, Dr. Bill Williams, who unfortunately died a number of years ago, but he's not forgotten. Bill was an amazing man. You know those people that you look at and you think, wow, how does he do all the things he does? Well, Bill was not only a, a terrific GP and one of the founders, the three main founders of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and tireless worker on peace issues. He also was a huge person, a huge advocate for Indigenous issues, and in fact went and worked in Kintour, which is an Indigenous community in the Northern Territory just west of Alice Springs, um, pretty close to the West Australian border. When he died about two years ago, about 18 of the Pintubi came over to his funeral, which is a huge undertaking to, to, to come and, and mourn. Beloved, in his, he, he worked as a GP in Torquay and surfed every, almost every day and, you know, learned languages. He learned to speak Pintubi. But anyway, to cut a long story short, his old school has put up a scholarship fund to support an Aboriginal student coming to study. They have an existing connection there with Aboriginal culture where they have about 10 students, I think, that come to the school and they're putting a, a scholarship up, the Dr. Bill Williams Chijungarai scholarship. Now that Chijungarai, I'm not saying it right, but that's Bill Williams' skin name in Pintubi because he was so beloved by the community they gave him a sort of family name. But these scholarships, it will be a, a fund that's in perpetuity and then they'll use the income from that fund to fund the scholarship. So if anyone would like to remember Bill College, I think it's tax deductible, and if you if you rang the Geelong College switchboard or you got looked at the website, you'd be able to find how to contact them. Um, I think the actual telephone number is five double two six three double seven nine. If people want to get in touch, but yeah, for Bill, he's so missed still. I mean, the thing that I think was Bill's greatest skill, and he had many many skills, was he'd sit in a meeting and there'd be all these really diverse views around the table, and he would be able to listen to all those views juggle them together, put out something that was made everybody feel listened to and then get a consensus. And that's a skill I've, I've been in many, many meetings in my life and I've never seen anyone do it as well as building. We miss him a great deal. I remember the last time I spoke to him, it was his day at the local nursing home in Torquay and he was doing the interview in the, in the staff meeting room at, at his lunchtime. A remarkable bloke and great passion, great principle, great sense of humour. Yeah, he, he was the eye kangaroo. He jumped up in it when ICANN was trying to get started. He went to India to a big medical conference to try and get sponsorships, and to do that, he took over an Australian kangaroo suit and jumped around this really hot conference as the eye kangaroo and got everybody really laughing. And I think that was one of the things that really helped ICANN get off the ground. Well, I'd imagine there's plenty more issues to keep you busy for the next while, Margie. <laughs> there's never a shortage, sadly. Yes, it is sadly, isn't it? Okay, thank you. Thanks, Jen. And that is Dr. Margie Beavis, who was the immediate past president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, is now the secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And the time is coming up to three minutes past five o'clock. In a moment, we'll be hearing about efforts to make sure that mining 
stays out of El Salvador and to pressure mostly Oceana Gold to do the right thing in the Philippines. And then we'll be hearing another or an alternative assessment of the elections, the recent elections in Venezuela. VCR Radiothon 2018, Fight for Your Mic. The 3CR annual Radiothon fundraiser is almost here. From June the 4th to the 17th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 039419 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2018, fight for your mic. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 8.55am in Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Last Monday, a phone hookup was held for members of the International Allies and members from a number of countries, including Australia, took part and one of them was Melbourne activist Kevin Bracken. When I spoke with Kevin, I asked him first, who are the international allies and what is their role? I attended a fact-finding mission to El Salvador in um, 2013. I was representing the the Maritime Union, but there was people from, um, I think, probably nine or ten different countries, from the USA, from Canada, Germany, Peru, Ecuador, a lot of other South uh, Latin American countries. And I was, a, I was a representative from Australia. And out of that, we've kept in contact regularly through uh, phone hookups and emails. On the um, last Monday, we had another one. So it was attended by people from the Institute of Policy Studies in uh, Washington, Mining Watch Canada, La Mesa in El Salvador, the National Roundtable Against Metal Mining, from the Democracy Centre, people from the Democracy Centre in Bolivia. And from Australia, we had... Uh, I was. Well, I'm a member of the MUA. I'm not an elected member of the MUA, but just a member. The Edmund Rice Centre and the PASA, the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association. So we just went through and we had updates from El Salvador. So there was an election earlier this year. Uh, the new assembly started on the 1st of May this year. And ARENA, who's a right-wing party in El Salvador, has controlled the legislative assembly, which is the first time for probably about five or six years. So that's a bit disappointing. But the ban that was put on uh, metal mining was voted for, through by all parties. So even though it's a right-wing government, they're still all committed to the um, the ban on mining. Uh, there's not those on Guatemala. There's a lot of stuff going on because there's a, actually another large gold mine in uh, Guatemala just over the border, which is a watershed to El Salvador, and that's a Cerro Blanco mine. And just before I'd been over there, I think there was six people that had been shot there was a um, curfew put on and it was had widespread opposition right throughout Guatemala against the mine. But they didn't ban the mine or stop the mine because they were worried about they were, that they were going to be sued, the same as El Salvador was being sued then, through investor state dispute settlement legislation, which had been 
part of the Central American Free Trade Agreement. So that's continued on, and that, that meeting, there was a conference on that in April, um, we spoke about Oceana Gold and other countries. Their biggest mine is in the Philippines, in the Dibio. They've also got another mine in New Zealand and one in the USA, which has just been opened up, which I think is in Carolina. And then we spoke about other work on mining ISDS cases too. One of the big ones now is uh, Bear Creek versus Peru, where the people there, the Amada people who are opposed to the mine, are being prosecuted and, and it's actually talking about the criminalisation of protest, you know, which is actually coming about now. And there was an announcement that they had won the Democracy Centre in... Um, had won the Leslie Boffitt 2018 Human Rights Award after their work they've done with it. And then we just went over evaluations and lessons learned from what we've been doing. In El Salvador, there's two issues that they want resolved, and that's that the two companies that are owned by Oceana Gold in El Salvador, the El Dorado Foundation and Menemores Tolagos, to leave the country because there's a ban on mining, and these companies are both owned 100% by Oceana Gold. They can't see any purpose in there. And all they're doing is spreading money around and causing a lot of um, internal dissent, which you know, resulted in, in a number of murders through this um, protesting of the mine. And the two is the, they want the um, board of Oceana Gold to assist with the inquiries into the murders associated with the um, with the operation when Pacific when it was owned by Pacific Rim. Is there any moves by? any of the other countries to do what El Salvador does? Or as you've said, they're too frightened of being sued by the companies to bring in a ban. Well, that's the problem, why why they didn't. You know, they have a good quote here. Um, International arbitration cases have a chilling effect on efforts of governments to enact measures to protect the environment and public health. And that's a fact. So, yes, there was talk on Guatemala... Just when we got there in 2013, I think in, in April that year, there'd been six murders, people protesting the mine there, for the Cerro Blanco mine. But they didn't stop it. The mine's still operating now. And that's what, ha- that's what happens when you have these ISDS legislations, which actually takes power away from elected governments and gives it to a tribunal in the World Bank, which has been put in there by um, international corporations. So I had a good quote here from Bob Moran, who was a hydrologist who did the it did these, a lot of the work which resulted in El Salvador being successful in their case in the ISDS in the Exit Tribunal in Washington. He, he said, we've allowed a system to evolve where all the assessments are done with, within forums that international business interests have produced. And they also have a lot of influence in the wording of international trade agreements that the courts rely on. So I thought it was good. And full credit to Bob Moran, unfortunately, he was killed in a uh, car accident in um, Ireland last year. But he, he, he'd done a, a lot of work and a lot of the success from this case has got to be, go to uh, Bob Moran. Looking at what's happening here in Australia, there's a, a Senate meeting or committee meeting on Friday. That's connected with this sort of stuff, isn't it? Exactly right. And while we were talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement and there was a reasonable amount of um, a little bit of public awareness, not enough, and it's been completely ignored by mainstream media, that um, you know, Donald Trump withdrew from the TPP, but those talks have still continued, and it's called now the um, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So it's still being negotiated. Nearly all the clauses are, are in there, but also the US has just said that they might actually come back into the um, the TPP, 
which will bring back all the clauses which everyone was objecting to, which in a large case, a large amount of these ISDS legislation, Investor State Dispute Settlement Procedures, which actually hand powers away from elected governments to tribunals set up by international corporations. Now, we've had one case against Australia, which was the uh, Philip Morris case, and that was done because Philip Morris had its headquarters in Melbourne, and then because it found out that Australia had signed a free trade agreement with um, Hong Kong, I believe it was, they moved their headquarters to Hong Kong, and then they sued Australia for plain packaging, plain packaging cigarettes. And they were unsuccessful in it, you know, which they all rag about. But it still cost Australia $50 million to defend against their case. And what they've done in this case is said we can't bring cases in plain packaging cigarettes. But there's a million things they can, they can sue us on. Fracking, for example, anything else you'd want to think of, you know, which would give corporations the ability to do it. And actually that happened with uh, Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim tried to sue El Salvador through the CAFTA agreement, Central American Free Trade Agreement. They couldn't do it because their headquarters was in the Bahamas. So what they did, they moved their headquarters from the Bahamas to Nevada, and under that they sued El Salvador for about $300 million, which was a, their claim against the company for um, loss of profits. So you don't even have to have a business operating, but you just have to say my projected, their projected uh, profits are being compromised, and that gives them rights to claim damages against that country. Can you just explain again, Kevin, why they didn't succeed in the case in El Salvador? They went for $300 million. They didn't get it. They only had to pay part of El Salvador's legal costs. Why didn't they win? There was two reasons why they didn't win. They didn't ha- have the freehold to all the lands that they wanted to uh, use for the mine. That was the number one reason. The second was the environmental effects statement that they'd produced at the start of it was found to be deeply flawed. They'd considered like zero zero cost for water, and just like an, an average an average mine uses twenty four thousand gallons of water per hour, and that's about what a Salvadorian family would use in twenty years. So that was the two reasons why they they lost the case, and as I said, a lot of that work was due to uh, Bob Moran, who unfortunately is no longer with us. So in one sense, they were lucky that they had these people who were really onto it. But they could have easily been down the chute for $300 million. And this is a problem with it. Usually they can't, the um, corporations, the exit tribunal rules in favour of the corporations all the time. And the case against Ecuador, which I believe is, was for, I think, $1.4 billion or $1.6 billion, they didn't lose the case, but they actually agreed to pay, I think, $970 million to the company in lieu of the case going right through. So there's massive amounts, you know, liabilities that corporate countries are going to be liable to by signing up to these free trade agreements, and no one in their in their right mind would sign on to them, which would stop the country introducing legislation to predict the health and welfare of their citizens. I suppose you just need to, know, need to go and see what Andrew Robb, who was pushing for this, this free trade agreement, and signed on to three other free trade agreements, Japan, Korea and Chinese free trade agreements which had these ISDS clauses in there and before he'd even retired he'd, he'd signed himself onto some big corporation and they should be tried for, tried for um, treason. Just get back to the meeting on Friday, the Senate meeting, what's involved there now? 
Yeah, well, there's a uh, Senate inquiry. I believe that there's going to be two dates where they're heard, one in Melbourne and one in um, Sydney. There's a um, Senate Joint Standing Committees on Treaties, which the TPP is, and there'll be two hearings for them, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne. The one in Melbourne's on Friday, I believe. If anyone wants to make a submission, and you can, if you haven't had the time to do it, just go on and sign on to the um, Get Up petition, and you can uh, make a submission into it. So it's not only it's not only ISDS clauses too, but also the uh, pharmaceutical benefits scheme, which Australia is, is very fortunate of. You know, in the US, when you get cancer, you get double sentence. You could die from it, but you'll definitely be made bankrupt because of the cost of um, drugs. And that's what happened when we've signed on to the earlier free trade agreements with the USA. We didn't. We let the the um, all the drugs that were on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme go through, but any new drugs that were introduced actually aren't covered by the PBS scheme. And so I know people who are paying, unfortunately, they've got, um, they've got cancer or their partners have got cancer, they're paying $8,500 per month for the uh, drugs to keep them alive and keep the melanomas away. You just get, go on to get up. If you Google get up, they'll see their petitions they've got online, and um, one of them is over TPP, the updated TPC. There's another important meeting on Friday and you're encouraging listeners and the general public to be out in Collins Street fairly early in the morning. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit, a bit of an ask. We've been protesting the, um, outside the offices of Oceana Golf and it's going on nearly five years now. And usually we had it the last Friday of the month. We didn't have it last week. And the reason was it's the annual general meeting of Oceana Gold this Friday, 1st of June. And it starts at 9 o'clock in the morning. So we would love if people could be there by 8.30 in the morning and hand out information sheets to shareholders going into the meeting. And what you'll be doing is actually speaking up for the people who live in these countries whose voices never get heard by the shareholders who usually want to make a lot of money. So why we're asking them to actually think about these two things in El Salvador about moving the companies out, and, and El Salvador's been a loss for um, Oceana Gold. It lost a court case and was awarded $8 million uh, to be paid back to the government of El Salvador for their cost, even though it cost them $13 million to, de- to defend it. Yeah, so for those two companies owned by Oceana Gold to get out of it, and the other one is to invest to, uh, for the board of Oceana Gold to assist with any inquiries into the mur- people who were murdered through the, the um, time that Pacific Rim... Um, had this operation in El Salvador. They're not big ass, but we believe that it would be a great step of the way to um, healing some of the pains that's been caused to the local communities. And those activities by those mining companies where people are brutally murdered just reverberates right through the whole communities. That's right. <laughs> and, that, and you can understand why the uh, people want the companies out, there, out of there anymore. Out of there. They don't want uh, more disharmony within communities, which... Um, Pacific Rim did cause. They're the two things that we're asking shareholders to um, to support. It's not going to cost them any money, but it would go a long way to healing some of the hurt that's been caused. The other thing is, too, is the Philippines, which their largest mine is, is the DPO. We're asking the, the um, shareholders to have a look at what's going on there. The company says that they've got a won an award for reforestation, but people who we went who went there earlier from the um who was on, who were on the phone hook up last monday were there only a month ago 
and they said that there's to be no reforestation of the areas that they've already uh, closed down. It's a massive open pit mine. Duterte had said that he was going to shut down any mine that didn't reforest trees, which was in which is part of what they should do. So asking shareholders that it, it's uh, next year's a 25 years since it's had the lease on it. Several members of the provincial council of Nevada Vizcayu, which is a state where um, their mine is, have promised to block the renewal of a soon-to-expire permit of Oceana Gold. And that area around the DPO is a fruit and vegetable capital of Luzon. So there have been monitoring reports from the rivers around the mine and they've indicated that there's high levels of lead, manganese, cadmium, sulphates, iron, arsenic and selenium. If people could help there, then what they're going to do is actually speak up for the voices that aren't, usually never get heard in these board meetings. Speaking up for people who live in these communities are really affected by mining companies in El Salvador and the Philippines. What he has been doing is actually supporting some of the mines, in, especially in the south of the Philippines too, and criminalising anyone who's protesting. And sacking his environmental minister. Well, actually, she wasn't sacked by, by the Duterte. She was sacked by the, by the whole board. The, the Congress had to vote on the, her appointment. That's right. And they didn't vote on it. That's what mining companies do. When they meet opposition or something they don't like, they spread some money around, exactly what they did in Australia when they were going to introduce a mining tax. KPMG did a um, study on how much the mining company spent on the, against the mining tax, and that was cost them about $27 million. And on that, remember the, pro, the uh, millionaires' protests they had in West Australia? Mm. Yeah, the front-page articles in the paper, the ads on TV. It cost them $27 million, and they've saved how many billions? I don't know. But it means that, you know... The people of Australia don't get the benefit of the mining companies. And especially, I'll just say something about the Philippines. The Philippines is one of the top five countries in the world in terms of results of gold, copper, nickel and other metals estimated as a trillion dollars. Yet the 41 large-scale industrial mines operating in 2016 contributed less than 1% of the GDP. Negligible job benefits after the construction phase. So while they go on about you know, all, the, all the benefits that mining is going to do for the Philippines and you know, how they're supplying jobs, in truth, it doesn't really happen. The average life of a mine is about 15 years, and after that, they're left with the problems like fixing deforested hillsides, poisoned water streams, and a sickened population. They're left to the uh, cost of the taxpayers and the people in the community who live around those mines. Is this the first time that you've um, been to the... AGM of Oceana Gold? Yes, it is. But last year it was, it was held in Toronto, which is there's two headquarters for Oceana Gold, one's Toronto and one's in Melbourne. This is the first one that we've known on that's, that's going to be in Melbourne. So if people could come along, that would be greatly appreciated. And what we'll be doing is channelling the voices of those people who live in the areas of where those mines are. People who, who often don't get heard because they don't wear suits to work, they don't speak English, they're a bit different. But you know what? There's a lot of things that might be a little bit different, but in basics, they're exactly the same as us. They just want a decent life. They want to be able to live in peace, and they want to be able to you know, survive and do well for their children and their families. So if anyone could get there on this Friday, it'd be fantastic, at 8.30, 357 Collins Street in the city. See you there. Terrific. Thanks a lot, Jan. And that was Kevin Bracken from the MUA, and there's two things there. There's Get Up. Get on to that and have a look what they're asking you to do to support the people of El Salvador and the Philippines.
and Friday morning, 8.30 in Collins Street. Now, the tram stops just about outside the door at 3.57 Collins Street. So rug up and catch the tram from wherever you are and come along and you can even go with the tram in Burke Street and walk one block. Be there at 8.30 on Friday morning at 3.57 Collins Street in the city. The Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate is back. We live in a time of crisis, of impending doom and the fear of nuclear war. But we still need to laugh. This year, comedians will debate the very real question. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? Join Master of Ceremonies Rod Quantock for a sparkling night of progressive comedy featuring Sean Bedlam, Pauline Farts on Hellchild, Kirsty Mack, Gabe Hogan, Frank Hamster, Morvan Smith and more. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged and $12 Concession. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Saturday, June 16, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? A fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential. Phone 9639-8622 or go to trybooking.com forward slash VBYO. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter. I'm joined now on the line by activist, journalist and author Fred Fuentes and the topic is Venezuela. Fred, I just want to read first from a Guardian Weekly article titled Opponents Denounced Maduro's Election Win as Fraud. Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro has shrugged off international condemnation and allegations of vote buying and electoral fraud to claim a second six-year term at the helm of the crisis-stricken nation. Addressing supporters outside the presidential palace in Caracas last Sunday night, he hailed the impeccable electoral process that returned him to power with 67.7% of the vote. The election board put turnout at just 46.1%, way down from the 80% registered at the last presidential vote in 2013 due to a boycott by the mainstream opposition. His nearest rival, however claim vote-buying and electoral irregularities meant the election was illegitimate. He told reporters, We do not recognise this electoral process as valid. As far as we're concerned, there has been no election. There must be new elections in Venezuela. Fred, these are the stories in the mainstream media. How do you see the months leading up to the election and the election itself? Uh, unfortunately, one of the, the big problems uh, with the media's coverage of these Venezuelan elections is that very few of the media outlets have actually been willing to discuss exactly why these elections have come about. Normally, uh, presidential elections wouldn't be held until later this year. Uh, the constitutional mandate for Maduro's current presidential term doesn't finish until about October, November, uh, which, oh, sorry, till January, and so hence the elections uh, should be held around October, November, so that a new president, can, elected president, can be sworn in in January next year. However, these early elections essentially come about uh, because of two reasons. Now, the first is, as, as many of your listeners will know, because we discussed this uh, on the program, were, was the wave of often violent protests that were held last year against the Nicolas Maduro government. 
uh, one of whose uh, primary uh, demands was a call for early elections. What resulted out of those protests, uh, amongst other things, was a process of dialogue between the government and the main opposition parties that occurred in the second half of last year, uh, dialogues that were moderated by former Spanish President uh, Zapatero, uh, and of which one of the key points of discussion, again, was this question of early elections, and of which an agreement, or at least a, a, a verbal agreement, had come about between all parties to hold elections early this year. Just as the agreements were to be signed, however, we saw that the opposition pulled out uh, and said that they would no longer sign this agreement. Many believe, under pressure from the US government, uh, who did not prefer this sort of course of action towards the Maduro government. The Maduro government decided to go ahead with the elections anyway, calling on all opposition parties to participate. In that context, at least two figures from the opposition, one being Henry Falcon, a quite a popular opposition figure, a former governor of the state of Lara, together with a, an evangelical pastor who's sort of more newer to the political scene, uh, both said that they would be willing to contest these elections, although they did request that the date be pushed back to May uh, rather than the initial April date, just give them more time for their campaign. Uh, the government, in consultation with the National Electoral Council, the CNE, agreed to this change. And this is how we come about with these elections. So elections that were initially demanded by the opposition uh, were not elections that were due in any legal or constitutional sense, uh, but one a demand that the government was willing to accede to. And in the end, we saw the opposition decide that rather than go ahead and measure their strength at the polls, uh, the main opposition parties uh, carried out a boycott uh, of these elections. Unfortunately, none of this context is presented when the media uh, simply denounces these as uh, illegitimate uh, elections or, or sham elections without providing any, any actual evidence or, or any justification for these uh, accusations. So not all of the opposition leaders are following the US if they've agreed to participate in this election? That's right. I think what we've seen and I think what these election results have shown is, 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 is a couple of very important elements. Uh, and then just to, to sort of list them. Firstly, what we saw for the first time probably many years was, was a split in the opposition between a more moderate wing of the opposition uh, who believes that the way forward in order to uh, return to government, to, to defeat the Nicolas Maduro government, is to participate within, within the system. Uh, that is to contest these elections, to show that they are the majority of voters and that they you know, can win these elections and through that process uh, be able to, to regain power in Venezuela. And, and actually, although their electoral result was far diminished in terms of Maduro's vote because of the boycott of the radical wing, the, the figures would seem to indicate that had the opposition as a whole gone together in these elections, they quite likely would have beaten Maduro in terms of the decline of vote that uh, Maduro received between his election in 2013 compared to his election today. However, as I said, the, the opposition split on this. One wing said they would run. A clear indication of the fact that the US did not support this wing of the opposition was that Henry Falcon, the main opposition candidate, was actually threatened with sanctions by the US government if he was to go ahead uh, and participate uh, in, in these elections. What we saw was the other wing of the opposition, the more radical wing of the opposition, the one that clearly is working in, in alliance with the US government and some of the more extreme elements in the US government who want to see a, an overthrow of the Nicolas Maduro government by any means necessary, is, is a very clear 
expression that they believe that the only way to really get rid of Maduro is through some kind of undemocratic, unconstitutional means that would bring about a transitional government. What they seek is not simply to elect a Maduro out of power, but really to wipe out every, everything and anything that has to do with the whole process of the Bolivarian revolution that was initiated by Nicolas and Maduro's predecessor, Hugo Chavez, with his election in 1998, and then the, the, the government of Chavez and, and then Maduro subsequent to that. What they believe is that you know, a simple electoral victory, simply winning the presidency won't be enough. They need to clear out the military. Uh, they need to clear out the Supreme Court. They need to clear out the, uh, the Electoral Council. And for them, uh, an election, elections is not enough. Really what they seek is perhaps, you know, a minimum, something on the lines of what we're seeing in Brazil, some kind of uh, so-called, under the pretext of a constitutional uh, manoeuvre, an undemocratic coup that removed the, the president there in Brazil and has seen an unelected president now in power for the last two years who have implemented measures that the, the rich and the US have wanted for many years, but they, they were unable to, to sort of run campaigns, electoral campaigns, and be elected on that platform. Or in a worst-case scenario, you know, we've already seen the media openly talking about this, and this is quite scary that we're entering a period where uh, even newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post are unashamed and unafraid to run editorial pieces and and opinion pieces openly talking about the, the possibilities of a military coup and weighing up the pros and cons as if there could be any any potential pros of a military coup anywhere in the world. And, of course, another way to make sure that a government falls is to exacerbate the economic crisis. Can you explain how a country can decline to the extent that it has in such a relatively short time? Yes, that's right. Well, this um, What you mentioned there is, is the other... Uh, sort of key factor that shows that really what the, the US and a lot of the, the Western governments uh, really seek is to use any, any, any means necessary to get rid of the Maduro government and British Foreign Secretary Byron Johnson admitted, you know, admitted as much when he was just recently in Argentina where he talking about the new sanctions that the US government had imposed on, on Venezuela. He said, look, the bad thing about sanctions is that you know, at the end of the day they hit the poorest of the poor they're the ones that really suffer as a result of sanctions. But he added to that, well, it just seems that unfortunately in Venezuela things will have to get worse before they get better. They're very brazenly admitting that uh, the foreign governments are working to worsening the situation uh, in Venezuela. How are they doing that? Well, look, they're doing this for a variety of measures. As I mentioned, the economic sanctions are by far the most principal, sanction, uh, principal method that they're doing this by. I, I just before I get into the sanctions, I do want to add, I do not think the entire situation there can, in Venezuela can be put down to the economic sanctions. I think there are other broader issues to do with dropping oil prices uh, and government mismanagement and also uh, a boycott by uh, business owners in Venezuela that have tried to worsen the economic crisis. But it's in, it's in this context where the, the so-called international community, which when, when the media talks about international community, they really refer to the US and European Union, are implementing these sanctions that are a number of things that are stopping the Venezuelan government from being able to do. One is to be able to access the, the international financial uh, circuit. But that is basically Venezuela has extreme problems in when they are trying to import food to be able to use foreign banks to be able to pay for that, that food. And this is a country that is highly dependent on, on imports. So you're essentially cutting off its ability to do business uh, with, other, with other companies and even just with banks themselves. Many of them have been threatened with actions if they are to allow the Venezuelan government to, to use their sort of financial structures to be able to import food. 
We've also seen pressure being put upon uh, other companies to not work uh, with Venezuela. Other countries' governments have been told, look, your businesses, your companies, your state-owned companies uh, risk sanctions if you enter into business with Venezuela. We've also seen, for example, the prohibition on the ability of Venezuela to be able to essentially, in discussion with banks and financial institutions, uh, get out new loans to renegotiate their current debts. Now, usually a, a government in a situation like Venezuela in such a deep economic crisis would seek to renegotiate their loans to be able to put off debt payments in order to be able to instead focus their money on you know the, the immediate emergencies that are needed to be tackled. But what the US government, with its sanctions, is doing is ensuring that the Venezuelan government can't do that, can't do something that every other government in the world could and would do in this situation, and instead forcing them to have to repay their debt rather than prioritise the internal needs of the people or, of course, risk the possible ramifications of beginning to default on loans and debts that they have to, to other financial institutions and governments. So this, this really shows out how the hypocrisy of of the, the, the US government who, on the one hand, speaks out to s- supposedly defend the, the interest of the ordinary Venezuelan people and makes big noise about giving small amounts of, of funds to go towards Venezuelans who are, you know, left Venezuela and, and in the bordering regions of Colombia and Brazil at the very same time that they are blocking millions and in some cases billions of, potential, of dollars that the Venezuelan government could be accessing in order to be able to directly deal with the very serious economic crisis that uh, is, is being inflicted there that is occurring in Venezuela. What about the role of the business class in Venezuela? I'd imagine they're still operating, they're still making profits. Yes, that's right. The, the, despite the fact that you know the, the media again presents the Venezuela situation as essentially a result of because of the you know, wide-scale state ownership of the entirety of the, of the economy and that you know, business has been you know, pushed out of the country. You know, many industries in Venezuela today still continue to be largely privately owned. And of course, the national government, just like a, any other national government, has the right of prerogative to, to set up its own companies, as it has done in a number of industries. But when it comes to, for instance, food production, you know, the largest food producer in Venezuela, Polar, a private company, fun, you know, continued to function before Chavez and Maduro and continues to exist and, and, and function today. But what we're seeing by many of these business class uh, who have a political interest in getting rid of the Maduro government uh, is a concerted campaign to attack the economy through a variety of measures, whether that be by reducing production, whether that be by putting their products rather than into the formal market, selling them in the informal market where they can sell them at much higher prices and speculate with the prices of, of goods, whether that be for a contraband and trying to get their products across the border illegally into Colombia where they can sell it for a higher price than they're able to do in Venezuela. Or should it add in this context that in Venezuela key basic goods uh, have price, you know, price controls in, in implemented. So this is why, you know, for business owners there's a vested in, there's a there's a profit motive to, rather than sell their produce to Venezuelans, to get it across the border to Colombia where they can sell it at a much higher price than, than they're able to do in Venezuela. So there's a whole range of tactics that, that have been used by the, the business class in, in Venezuela to really undermine the government. Of course, the biggest one is the, the, you know, the problem of, of hyperinflation, which cannot be put down solely to the question of, of, of what, the, what, the, what business owners have been doing, but you know, of course they are the ones that in, in many cases are, are the ones that are setting the prices for what, you know, what products are being sold. 
so this, they have an impact in, in, in this problem with hyperinflation that Venezuela is, is currently facing. You can think of other countries where there's an economic crisis and the people are suffering, but you'll also find that the leaders of the country are doing very nicely, thank you. Is there any evidence that there's been corruption at the highest levels in Venezuela? I think there's no doubt that there's been uh, evidence of corruption in Venezuela. That's in indicated, uh, in fact, if, if anything, the biggest indicator of that is the very strong anti-corruption campaign uh, that the, the current ombudsman has been running in Venezuela that has really particular started with and, and gone really deep into the state oil company with a number of current and former state oil company executives being jailed or currently uh, you know, being, being chased and because they've left, fled the country and <laughs> funnily enough in some cases gone to the United States so where, where the, of course the United States are refusing to, to extradite uh, uh, these people back to Venezuela. We, there, there's no doubt that there's problems of corruption in Venezuela problems that pre-exist the Chavez and the Maduro government, but a serious problem that I think many believe that the, the government really has to build on what they've done to date uh, in terms of in the last few months, uh, because whilst it's been a very good start uh, to tackling this problem, uh, I think many still believe that the, the, the problem goes much deeper, uh, and I think this will be a key test for, for the Maduro government, how, how well they're able to continue to wage this, this war on corruption to really show to people, you know, that they're serious about that, dealing with this problem and, and are not afraid to, to follow the, the trails of corruption no matter how, how high up they go into the government. This is 3CR and you're listening to Fred Fuentes, journalist, activist and author, speaking about the recent elections in Venezuela. We're continually being told that the exodus to Colombia has reached epidemic numbers how true is that? And what happens when these people reach Colombia? One problem with this issue is, is getting exact figures. You know, the, the figures range from a couple of hundred thousand through to, you know, several million. How do you get these precise figures? It, it's very difficult, or which institution you, figures you accept. Uh, you know, of course, every, every, everyone, depending on what their interest is, will, will choose a different one. But I think there's no doubt that there's been a, a large exodus uh, of people, irrespective of the exact number, leaving Venezuela. With Colombia being an important port of call for a number of reasons, uh, obviously it's, it's right next to Venezuela. It's, it's a bordering country, uh, like Brazil is, but Brazil's sort of you know their border region is the Amazonian region. So getting from there to to sort of a, a city is quite difficult. Uh, another reason why Colombia is, is has been a quite popular uh, exit destination uh, is the fact that because of Colombia's ongoing civil war, despite the peace agreements that have been signed there. That, sort of essentially 40, 50 years of, of civil war that's been occurring there uh, in Colombia. Uh, within Venezuela, uh, you have essentially four to five million Colombians or descendants of Colombians uh, living in Venezuela. So some of those would also be uh, people who are returning to a country where they have family that they can they, they, they can rely on. And what's been happening with them? Well, this has been a, a big, big issue because what we've seen is a rise of uh, xenophobia, and discrimination against uh, many of these Venezuelans who have, who have left Venezuela to go to Colombia and other South American countries as well. And many of them use Colombia as a sort of just essentially an exit point but want to continue on to, to other countries. And so this has been a, an important focus of the government. In fact, one of Maduro's main announcements in his, his, or main calls in his victory speech following elections on May 20 was a call to particularly the young people of Venezuela who have left the country to come back to 
you know, to, to, to avoid the suffering of the discrimination that they've, they've encountered uh, and to help rebuild the country. So it's been a very difficult situation for those that have left the country, of course, as it is for, for anyone uh, when they're in a situation where they're forced to, to leave their country. This, I would argue, though, is a, is a different scenario than, say, for instance, those that have been forced to, to flee war-torn areas or those that have been uh, forced to, to flee because of uh, military dictatorships or the threat of repression. Really what we're seeing is uh, an economic situation that has become quite dire, and as, we're, as we've spoken about, being exacerbated uh, by US government policies, which on the one hand strangle the Venezuelan economy and on the other hand offer the carrot of a few million dollars to those Venezuelan refugees who are in Colombia, almost an incentive for people to leave the country uh, whilst making their, their situation worse for those who choose to stay. Nevertheless, there can be no doubt that support for the government has decreased due to the economic crisis, but 48% of the people voted. People knew they'd be punished for voting for Maduro, but they did it anyway. Yeah, look, I, I think that's right. I, you know, of course, the media always want to play around with figures. So, you know, the, once it was uh, came out that the the final participation rate in the elections was was 48 percent, they called that a, a crushing victory for abstention. Now, you know, on the one hand, you know, Venezuela, because of its highly politicised and highly polarised sort of nature, has in recent years seen presidential elections of you know somewhere of the vicinity about 80, 85 percent uh, participation. So there, we're we're talking here about a, like a 35 percent drop in participation as a result of the, the important boycott by the opposition parties. But in almost every other country in Latin America, uh, in fact, arguably all, every other country in Latin America, a turnout of 48% is, is normal or high. Uh, in most of these other countries, if you look at the president of Colombia, although they just had elections now, I don't, you know, this weekend, I don't know what the final participation rate was there, but the recently elected president of Chile, all of them were elected with a lower turnout and no one in the media questioned that as an illegitimate elections on the basis of mass boycott by the lo local populace. Uh, so we see the way they play around with figures. But what we have, having said that, what we do see is, as I mentioned before, uh, a decline in the overall total number of votes that Maduro has received between 2013 to 2018. A decrease of roughly from about, off the top of my head, the figures being about 7.5 million to about 6.2 million. And that's, and we should add to that, that's a, also a decrease from Chavez's final re-election, which was in 2012, of over 8 million. So it's gone from 8 million in 2012 to about 7.5, 7.6 million in 2013 to 6.2 million uh, in 2018. In a context where Venezuela's overall population and voting population has increased, so if you take that in consideration, it's an even a further indication of, of the drop in support as a result of what's been happening uh, over the last few years in Venezuela. So. The government, whilst it can, you know, certainly claim to have won a legitimate mandate in legitimate elections and won an important victory against the opposition, I think would be uh, heavily mistaken if it was to take that as just a, a, a resounding level of support for where it's been going. Uh, you know, I think really underlying the vote is really a, a strong message, and this is accompanied by sort of anecdotal evidence that many people, uh, as you said, despite the threats that were coming down, against them if they were to vote for Maduro because there was a lot of international pressure to stop and stop the Venezuelans voting and this really cuts across the whole media discourse 
that says that, you know, uh, what you have in Venezuela is a situation where people will go out to vote, you know, just for a, because they'll bribe with a, with a packed lunch. What the Venezuelans are risking uh, by pushing ahead with this process is much greater than what any kind of prize they might be able to get for, for a vote. But what, what we're seeing is that in this context, the government really has to be able to take strong measures to start to begin to resolve that situation because the anecdotal evidence shows that many people were willing to go to vote for Maduro but really thought that this was also the government's last chance. And the Venezuelans had four elections in the last nine months. They've elected new mayors, of which the government won a majority. They've elected new governors, of which the government won a majority. They elected a national constituent assembly entrusted with rewriting the constitution and they've just re-elected the president. So really, many feel that the government now has no excuse whatsoever to not be able to really be able to turn the situation around the country. Many believe that if they don't, that what we'll see is those popular classes that have really made up the support base of the government who don't want anything to do with the opposition, uh, you know, who see the opposition as a return to the past, as a return to subservience uh, towards the United States, today want us, you know, are uh, saying that, well, if, if things don't begin to change, we will be forced to have to come out onto the streets to protest against, you know, what until now has been viewed by many as, uh, as our government, as their government. What did Maduro promise the people if they voted for him? The, really, the, the main, I suppose, message as opposed to concrete policies that the Maduro government put forward in, in the election campaign was a message of peace, of stability and of, and of dialogue. And it's also the message that really has come out after the, the elections. I, by that, I don't want to say that the, the government didn't put forward any kind of specific measures that it, that it hoped to implement. But really, uh, you know, the way that I see what the government uh, is seeking to do uh, is to, having used the election campaign, to firstly show to Venezuelans and the world that the majority of Venezuelans really do want to resolve this through democratic means. Many may like the government, many may not like the government, but what all of them don't want to see one way or the other is some kind of undemocratic resolution uh, to this. And I think that threat exists from both sides of the, of the political divider. I don't think it's just the right wing, you know, only within the right wing opposition where there are elements that would like to resolve this in an undemocratic method. I think there are no doubt that there are some sections within Chavismo, within those that support Maduro and Chavez, they'd be more than happy to use undemocratic means to finish off with this sort of political discourse, political polarisation in, in the country. So, you know, of course, either of those two would, would be a danger in the current situation. So the government want to prevent that. The people want democracy. People want to resolve this through peaceful, through peaceful methods. And the people want the different sides of the political debate to sit down and try to work a way out. Is that possible, though? It seems very difficult, you know, I don't want to go as far as say it's impossible, but it certainly seems very difficult when you have a situation of where at least these results show that the radical elements of the opposition continue to be the majority, even if Henry Falcon did show that he also has an important level of support. In fact, the two opposition candidates that I mentioned before, Falcon and the, the evangelical uh, pastor, got about 3 million votes, about 30% of the vote, uh, in, in these elections, which is an, a significant number of votes uh, in the context of where, as I said, Maduro got 6.2 million, uh, but where the other opposition parties are boycotted. Will that section of the population be willing to negotiate uh, dialogue? Maybe, but the radicals seem to be wanting to hold out, and that also seems to be the position of the US government as well, to encourage the opposition and, and tell them, look, do not dialogue, do not seek a way, a pacted way out of this crisis because we are going to do whatever we can to bring down this government um, as soon as possible. 
with you being the victors uh, if you stay out of this. So I think in that context, this seems it's going to be very difficult. But, you know, as I said, I, not, not impossible, and we'll have to see what, what the government decides to do. Uh, firstly, in, a, in attempting dialogue, and secondly, if, if it's unable to move ahead through the road of dialogue, what its other options might be. The loyalty of the military? As always, what happens inside a military is always very difficult to, to gauge because of the, the nature of a military. It's quite a secretive organisation. Certainly, uh, you know, the media has played up that there were some, you know, very small numbers, tiny numbers of military officials who were uh, arrested, uh, you know, around the time of elections, just before or after, perhaps because of their, you know, some kind of conspiring that was going in the military. It would appear, at least from the outside for now, that in general, the, the military seems to be uh, intact as an organisation and one that seems to demonstrate that it's what it, you know, above anything else is, is really to defend is, is the constitution itself. So I think in that regards, you know, perhaps a military coup is, is difficult, but one, of course, cannot rule out adventurous uh, attempts by small groups uh, within the military or ex-military officers, as we, in fact, as we saw last year, uh, during the, those protests that I mentioned that were calling for early elections. And at the tail end of those protests, we saw a small group of ex-military officers who attacked a military base, tried to take them over in order to, to steal weapons uh, for, one can only imagine, bigger bigger military actions uh, uh, to be taken against government. Well, that, that was diffused. They, they were arrested. They were caught. Um, but, you know, that, that's an indication that there is at least those elements somewhere. What their size, though, is... It, one would seem to, you know, evidence would seem to indicate that there's still a minority. But, you know, this is really what the US is hoping by worsening the situation, seeing if they can change that correlation of forces. Can they use the deepening of, of the economic stranglement of Venezuela to primarily split uh, and weaken the two main social forces that support the government today? That is, the popular classes, the poorer classes, that continue to be, whilst diminishing in support, still a majority in support of the government, and the armed forces. They hope that through this economic strangulation, perhaps they can provoke uh, some kind of uh, spontaneous uprisings that can provoke a, pre a pretext for military action, or perhaps just directly you know, provoke reaction within the military uh, in order to, to overthrow the government. And so I think in that sense, you know, all of us should be very much keeping an eye out on what happens in Venezuela, and irrespective of you know, what one might think of the Maduro government uh, certainly, you know, oppose any kind of, you know, undemocratic uh, resolution to, to the current political crisis. Uh, and, and that specifically today means, you know, very much rejecting the kind of uh, foreign policy that we're seeing coming out of, of Washington and the European Union that, you know, refuses to accept uh, Venezuela's uh, democratic uh, system, continues to impose tighter sanctions to worsen the economic situation rather than trying to help the situation in Venezuela. Thank you so much. No, not a problem, thank you. And that is activist, author, journalist Fred Fuentes talking about the situation in Venezuela. That's all for me, but I do urge anyone who gets up early in the morning to be in the city at 357 Collins Street at 8.30 on Friday morning. The weather looks as though it'll be pretty good. Catch the tram, no problems, to 357 Collins Street. And... Um, support the people in El Salvador and in the Philippines. I'll just go out with a couple, another community announcement about the Radiothon and then we'll hear from Archie Roach and then it's done by law. So I'll say bye for now. <laughs>